If you were here last week, uh, we talked about a guy named Isaiah in the Old Testament. And Isaiah is an interesting guy because he was called by God for ministry. And if you were here last week, you'll remember the first thing that God does is not try to make Isaiah feel great about himself. God tries to make Isaiah feel great about who? God. And God makes it really clear. Isaiah, this is not about your glory. This is not about your weight. This is about my weight. This is about my glory. And uh, as the story winds down, one of the ways that we know that Isaiah got it is that basically God came to him and said, Isaiah, in or out. Didn't explain anything. Just said, in or out. And what did Isaiah say? In. Isaiah said, in. I'm in. I'm all in. God explained later, well, this is what you're saying in two, which is what you guys will get in a little bit, because the game's not over yet. Uh, but God counted that as being blessed, and God counted that as somebody that would come onto his team. And so last week, what we learned is God wants us to respond by just saying in. And incidentally, for those of you that said out, that's okay, because I'm not God. Okay, so no problem with that. But that's what God expects. God expects us just to say in, not to explain himself, not to describe everything that's going to happen, just in. Well, today what I want to talk about is what does God want us to say I'm in about? What is it that he wants us to just throw in and say, listen, if this is what you're about, this is what I'm about. If this is where you're going, this is where I'm going. If this is sort of the marching orders, count me in. I'm going to do it. And to do this, I want to look at a story that is in 2 Kings chapter 6. So listen, uh, open up your Bibles, and there's some verses we're going to look at today that are not going to be on the screen. Now listen, if you didn't bring a Bible, that's totally fine. We have Bibles, so just raise up your hand, and we will get you a Bible. We've got people on the sides that would love to do it. Raise up your hand if you need a Bible. Okay? There you go. Distribute the Bibles. Keep them up until the Bible lady comes your way or the Bible man comes your way. Raise your hand. That's great. And uh, that will help you out a lot. If you're sitting next to someone that is cute of the opposite sex and you're single, you can just say, hey, could I just share the Bible with you? And that works too. All right. So here we go. 2 Kings chapter 6. We are going to start in verse 24. And uh, let's just jump into the story. It says these words, 2 Kings 6, 24. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. All right, so let me explain what's happening. The good guys sort of the good guys, are in Samaria. And uh, this is actually Syria, called Aram here, but Syria, a power from the north, is coming down, and they are laying siege to Samaria, the city, Samaria. And uh, just so that you know, because I didn't know this for a long time, that a siege is not a war, really. It's not where you come and you directly assault and, and engage in military battle. What you do is you surround the city, and then for weeks or months and sometimes years, you just don't allow anyone in or out of the city. And so, of course, what happens in the city when it's being laid siege to? What happens? 
you starve, right? You starve. And in fact, if you don't have a water source, you actually will have problems sooner than starving. But clearly, enough time has passed here that people are starving. And it says that people are starting to really scramble for any sources of food that they can. And so it says in here that a donkey's head sells for like 50 bucks, which back, you know, with inflation and stuff, it'd be like, you know, probably $2,500 today. It was like donkey heads are going for premium prices. Now, let me just say, donkeys were considered unclean animals. And I'm not just talking about like their physical cleanliness. In Jewish law, you are not supposed to eat donkeys. And furthermore, if you're going to eat a donkey, how many of you have ever eaten donkey? Really? What does it taste like? Chewy. Chewy. Okay. So, you know, you really have to cook that thing a long time. Put it in the uh, crock pot. And anyway, so, okay, so it tastes real chewy. Uh, But if you're going to eat a donkey, what's probably the last part of the donkey you would want to eat? The head. Yeah. You don't want to eat the head. You know, like pass an eyeball over here. That's, mmm, yum. All right, so that's what's happening here. And it says that then this other little delicacy, these little pods, which actually some of you may have a translation that says uh, it was called dove's dung. Dove's dung, mmm, dove's dung. It just has this, mmm, dove's dung soup. It's just like one of my favorites. Okay, so they're, they're eating these just incredibly awful, 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 awful things. And it's just showing the alarm that's starting to go through the city. People are literally starving to death. And you're thinking, it couldn't get worse than this? It does. All right, so we go on to uh, verse, um, where are we at? 26. All right, so it says, As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him, Help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, If the lord, now capital lord, in other words, if God, does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor, from the wine press? Uh, So what he's saying is, hey, how can I produce food? I might be the king, but I have no way of getting food for you. Then he asked her, well, what's the matter? And she answered, now listen to this. You want to hear about desperation? The woman said, uh, this woman said to me, give up your son so we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him, but she had hidden him. Now, there is so much wrong with that story. I mean, there is so much wrong when you think, how far would a mother go where she would do something like that? I mean, talk about desperation. And, and this woman has the nerve to say to the king, can you believe that other woman wouldn't go along with this idea? Can you believe that? And you can just see that desperation has totally changed values and perspectives so that something as hideous, about as hideous as you can get, looks in this woman's eyes like, it's okay. In fact, the bad thing is she wouldn't go along with it. The king was a king uh, named Jerem, and he was one of the wicked kings in Israel. His father was a famous wicked king named Ahab, and he had done a poor, poor job of leading the city. And during his reign, the people in Israel had pretty much pushed away from God. They'd rebelled from God. You might think, 
I can't believe that this is like true, that the Bible's relating a true story, that like women would eat their children. But Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, tells us that in sieges, that that was known to happen. And in fact, it's so interesting because about a thousand years earlier, as Moses is teaching, he makes a prophecy about the nation when the nation turns away from God. Uh, he says in Deuteronomy uh, 2853, you don't need to turn there because I'll just read it quick, but he says this is what's going to happen. This is one of the things, one of the curses that will come on Israel when Israel turns away from God. Because of all the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege. Okay, so that's, that's like now. You will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of the sons and daughters. And then listen, the Lord your God has given you. You're going to take the most precious gift that God has given you. And in your desperation and in your selfishness, you will actually destroy it. When you turn from God, everything is going to go wrong. That's the message that comes. Switching down to verse 30, it says, When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes as he went along the wall. The people looked and they saw that under his robes he had sackcloth on his body. He said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Okay, so the king hears this story, uh, obviously recognizes, oh my gosh, things could not get worse. Things could not get worse. And in fact, we're told that he's wearing this sackcloth, which was a real uh, abrasive material that people would put on under their clothes when they were in mourning uh, or when they were repenting, when they were turning back to God, just to show God, I am serious about this. And it says that the king had humbled himself and put the sackcloth on. But then he makes this really interesting statement. He says, okay, so we're going after Elisha. Now, who's Elisha? Well, Elisha must be like the commander of the force on the other side, right? Or Elisha might be, you know, some kind of politician that is called for this siege, right? He is some person that's working. He's an enemy, an enemy to Israel. Is that who Elisha was? No, Elisha was a prophet of God living in Samaria. And Elisha several times had saved, or through his words, with what God did, he had pronounced that God would save them, even under the attack of the Syrians, and it had happened. It had happened several times leading up to this story. You would think that the king would get a clue that God could save them. But instead of going to Elisha and saying, Elisha, what do we need to do? How can I bow down and worship God? What would you instruct me to? He is so upset about what's happening. He says, we're going after Elisha. Going to decapitate that guy. And really, who is he mad at? All right, himself. And he's mad at God. Elisha just represents God in his life. He's mad at God. And so instead, it's so interesting, he's wearing sackcloth that's supposed to be repentance, but he's not repenting at all. In fact, he's saying, do away with the prophet of God. Then we skip down to chapter 7, verse 1. 
And it says, Elisha replied, okay, so Elisha's had this death sentence thrown on him. And so here's what he says. He says, hear the word of the Lord. Let me tell you what God says about this circumstance. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, in about 24 hours, it says, uh, uh, a sea of the finest flour will sell for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In other words, what he's saying is prices by this time tomorrow, all prices, because we know that donkey head prices are going out of the roof and dove's dung, that delicacy is really expensive. He's saying, okay, all the prices by this time tomorrow will be back to normal, back to normal. So the officer who's with the king uh, was, was uh, leaning, uh, let's see, the officer on whose arm the king was leaning, in other words, this is his first in command, said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? In other words, he's saying, this is impossible. Even if, the, even if the, all the soldiers left and, and, you know, just disappeared, it would take us months to recover. We've got to grow these crops again. I mean, we're in huge trouble, and there is no way that this can be resolved by this time tomorrow. And then Elijah says this, you will see it with your own eyes, and then kind of an ominous thing, uh, but you will not eat any of it. And we'll see what that means in a second. Let me just clue, not good news for the officer that Elisha just said that. Okay, so... Here's the thing that is interesting to me. So often in our lives, something is happening, something goes really wrong. All of us have had that experience. Some kind of crisis, catastrophe, something happens. In this case, city is laid siege to, we see and it's impossible, no way out, hopeless situation. And in our minds we say, that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. There's no way to get out of this. That's just the end of the story. Some of you may be sitting here today and you're in a really miserable situation and your thought is, that's the end of the story. And what does Elisha tell them at this point? Is it the end of the story? It's not the end of the story. It is not the end of the story. God still has something that he's going to do. It's not the end of the story. That's one of the hardest things to believe when we're in crisis. We just think it's the end of the story. You lay awake at night and you think, this is hopeless. There is no way out. This is a disaster. And here Elisha reminds us, with God, that's not the end of the story. There's more to it. Uh, as we continue on in the story, it says in verse 3, now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say, we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. Uh, if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of, of the uh, Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. And if they kill us, then we die. It's so great. You know, you the Jewish thing. I can't do a Jewish accent, but it's sort of like, you know, if they kill us, we die. You know, it's sort of this thing, you know, we, we die if we stay here. We die if we go into the city. We probably die if we go over to the enemy camp, but at least there's a little hope in doing that. They could spare us. Leprosy at that time was a horrible disease. It wasn't only bad in that it started to sort of melt away your body, and it was a terribly painful, awful way to die. 
But it also meant that you were excluded from the community because they believed in that day and age, wrongly, but they believed that leprosy was contagious. So if you had leprosy, you'd be separated out. It's the reason that they're outside of the city gates while all of this is happening. Everybody else is inside the city gate. They're outside the city gate. And so they are in a totally desperate situation, without a doubt. But this is so interesting because in, instead of the despair leading to hopelessness, in their case, despair actually leads to courage. They decide to do something courageous. We're going to face into the lion's roar. We're going to go walking up to the enemy. We're going to cry out for mercy. And if they run us through with their swords, you know what? It's just a quicker way of dying. But maybe, just maybe, we'll be spared. And so they go out. Verse 5, it says, At dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. Now that's odd. That's a little odd. You've got this huge enemy camping in the enemy camp. They go there. No one's there. Well, what had happened? For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. That was common in that day. If you were under attack by a nation, you could pay money to another nation and they would loan you their armies. And here, apparently, they're believing that two armies have come. They have come from two different sides. They are now attacking. That's what they believe. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. Mm, more donkey soup. They left the camp. Uh, as it was, and ran for their lives. Now, this is an incredible miracle if you just think about it because uh, Hittite and Egyptian soldiers had not shown up. These are battle-hardened soldiers that are so terrified with what's happening that they not, only they not only leave, they don't pack up. They leave everything behind. They are in a panic. They go basic. They don't even get on their horses. They don't even take the time to saddle the horses. They basically just run down the road, just throwing things as they're running. They, they throw their weapons away. They throw their clothes away, anything that would slow them down. It is the most incredible story. It is a God thing. There's no way that human explanation could describe how this happened. It wasn't just good luck that everybody had a bad dream at the same time. This is God intervening, a miraculous intervention. It is something that Elisha had predicted, and sure enough, that's exactly what is happening. And so this miracle, this miracle occurs. And all of a sudden, let me just ask you, at this moment, is Samaria in trouble? What do you think? How many would say, at this moment, Samaria is still in big trouble? All right, you're going to have to vote one way or another, so I'm assuming you're all going to go with the other way. And how many of you would say, Samaria is not in trouble anymore? Okay, trick question. Both answers are right. Let's talk about this for a second. All right, verse 8. Okay, so first we're going to find about the men with the leprosy. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. And like the food is still laying out. They eat and drink. Then they take the silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. There weren't banks back then, so they're thinking, oh my gosh, we're going to hide this somewhere so we can get it later. Uh, they returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. In other words, they've hit the lottery. Their numbers just came up. They hit the lottery. Not only were they spared, 
They are now the wealthiest people in Samaria. They go from being lepers outside of the city. They are now the wealthiest people in Samaria. They are the only people who are not starving. Not only are they not starving, they have more food than they could ever, ever eat, more wine than they could drink, more clothes than they could wear, more gold than they could spend in their whole lifetime. On a dime, everything changes for these guys. When I was growing up, I lived in upstate New York in a town called Ithaca, which has a university called Cornell, Ivy League school. And uh, when I was nine years old, got really into basketball, and Cornell had a basketball team. Not a great basketball team, but it was Ivy League, and it was great to me. And so I would go up and I'd watch these games with my friend. And that was back in the day and age when a nine-year-old could you know, walk half a mile up to a university campus with college students around, and parents wouldn't think anything about it, and I didn't think anything about it, and I'd go to the games. But I'll tell you the greatest thing was the next day, so that was on Saturday. We didn't go to church on Sunday. So on Sunday, my friend and I would get up early and we would go up to this place called Barton Hall, which is where the games were played, and we knew a way into Barton Hall. And so we would sneak into Barton Hall and the gym was left exactly as it had been when the game ended. So there was you know, towels all over the place and trash in the stands, but there was still popcorn in the machines and the soft, drunk, the soft drink machines, which in that day and age, the only way you, know, you got a drink from a soft drink machine was when you ordered something and the attendant did it. There was no self-serve. This was like dying and going to heaven for a nine-year-old. Oh my gosh, as much Coke as we want and all the popcorn, and we would just gorge ourselves, and then my friend and I would play one-on-one full-court basketball on the same court that Cornell played on. It was like winning the lottery. Well, that's sort of, just so you get the picture, that's how the lepers feel, okay? They are playing one-on-one basketball with their friends, and this is like winning the lottery. Uh, Then a really interesting thing happens. Verse 9, Then they said to each other, What we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, because remember, it's just dusk at this point. It's the beginning of the night. Punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. And so this really interesting thing happens to these guys that have won the lottery. They think, we can't keep it to ourselves. That would be wrong. That would just, there are still people in the city who are dying. There will be people who die tonight because they don't get food. There will be other, maybe children, that are killed. We cannot keep this to ourselves. And so so they decide, we, we can't do that. And so they go back to the city. It says that they go back to the city. Uh, they cried out to the city gatekeeper and told them, We went into the uh, Aramean camp, and no one was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys and the tents that they had just, uh, just as they were left. And the gatekeepers uh, shouted the news, and it was reported within the palace. Now, this is an interesting thing, and I don't want to go into it, but the king doesn't believe it. This great king of faith does not believe it. So he has his little way of scoping this out, trying to figure it out. The story picks up. Finally, he says, okay, great. That's a great thing. And the story ends, it says, then the people went out and plundered the camp. In other words, the news in the morning goes out 
The people obviously are ecstatic. They basically riot. They stampede out the city gate. You know, the city gate's not that wide. Every person in the city is going over to the camp. So, you know, there's sort of this mass confusion and this stampede. And it says, okay, and so sure enough, so a sea of the finest flour sold for a shekel and two seas of barley sold for a shekel, uh, as the Lord had said. Then remember the officer, the guy that was skeptical, the guy that said, God could never do that. That's impossible, impossible. I've been around a long time, never seen God do that. That's impossible. Okay, bad news for the officer. The officer that had said that, uh, and then Elisha is telling the story, and he says, okay, remember the guy that said, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, this couldn't happen. Uh, and then the man of God said to him, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of any of it. And this is exactly why, because that guy was an idiot. He was standing in the city gate when the news went out, and he got trampled to death. There you go, you know, there you go. And, uh, you know, I had said before that when God's in a story, it never ends in tragedy. God's story never ends in tragedy. But if God's not in your story, it will. Eventually, it will. Eventually, your story ends in tragedy if God's not in your story. But here's the amazing thing. If God is in your story, no matter what you're going through now, no matter how bleak it looks, no matter how terrible it is, your story does not end in tragedy. And you might be thinking, well, how could that be? Because, like, I know somebody that loved Jesus and followed Jesus, and they contracted cancer, and they died. They were not healed. It ended in tragedy for that poor person. Question, did it end in tragedy for that poor person? What do you think? No, because where is that poor person? That poor person is in heaven. That poor, poor person has been totally healed, living, living the dream. If God is in your story, this is such an important part. I just want you to know, and if you're sitting there and go, God's in my story, but I feel like my story's ending in tragedy. I'm just saying you're deceived. Your story will not end in tragedy. God guarantees it. You've got a happy ending. It may not be the ending the way you'd want to write it, but let me tell you this. If God writes it, it's better than you could ever write it. And I'll tell you this too. Most of the time, most of the time, the story ends with the happy ending before you die. Now, sometimes, no. I'm just telling you, of all the terrible things that have happened in your life, you think back over all the crises, all the sleepless nights, all the things that happened where you were hopeless, where it's like this, did God get you through that? Are you sitting here today and saying, well, you know, actually, he did sort of get me through that. It's a whole different way of seeing things. And here's, here's kind of the point that I want to make. One is, you have a decision to make any time a crisis hits your life. And if, you're, uh, if your thought is, I'm going to trust God with this. I don't know how it could work out, but I'm going to trust God with it. I'm not going to look at this purely through human eyes, purely through how I can try to think how this might work out. I'm just going to hand this over and trust God. That doesn't mean you don't do anything because he may want you to do some things. But I'm going to trust him for the outcome. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold on to him, and I'm not going to become hopeless. God says, you can count on that. I will never, ever, ever, ever let you down. Never. You will never be let down by me. I will never leave you in the lurch. 
Now, there may be pain longer than you want pain. The solution may not come in the form that you want. It may take longer to get there. But God says, you are my dear child. I will not leave you in the lurch as long as I'm the king of the universe. I will control this, and it will turn out okay for you. And that's really the first thing. You know, do we believe that? If you're going through a hard time right now, if last night was a sleepless night for you, do you truly believe, as you're sitting here, God's got it? God's got me. If you've never accepted Jesus, then that's the first step, because that's, that's, that's the step into God's arms, is through Jesus. That's the step. But if you've taken that step, if you've accepted Jesus, you've been adopted. You're a child. God says, I've got you. That's the first thing. That's the first thing we need to think about. But here's the second thing, and this is so, so important. We live in Samaria. We live in a city that is under siege. You go, what? Huntington Beach is one of the nicest places in the world to live. Fountain Valley is a great place. I love Seal Beach or Westminster. I love where I live. What are you talking about? We, we went through a study in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, tells us that we are under siege from a person called the, the prince of the kingdom of the air that Satan is attacking. Now the thing, because he doesn't give a frontal assault, because it's not obvious, we don't think there's a big deal, but he surrounded us. He's choking us out. And I'm telling you, we've got people that live next door, we've got colleagues at work, we've got people we go to school with, and a marriage is falling apart, it is just being devastated, or there's abuse going on in that home, in that very home where everybody looks good, there are nights of terror for a child in that home. There are people that even though they look good and they're driving a BMW, they are staying up every night realizing it's over. Financially, I am bankrupt. It's over. They are so desperate and hopeless, you'd never know it because they still look the part on the outside. There are people that are so frustrated with their work, they can barely go every day. And the only reason they go is for a paycheck. They are so devastated with that. We have people that are showing up at doctor's offices and getting a diagnosis that they cannot believe. It just can't set in. They can't understand how this could happen. Or somebody they love just got the cancer word given to them. We live in Samaria. We absolutely do. And you know who we are in this story? Who are the people we are in this story? There's not a lot. Who? We are the lepers. We're the lepers. We're the ones that through some courageous decision, and maybe it wasn't even courageous, but at some point we said, I'm desperate enough. I've got to follow Jesus. And all of a sudden, a new life has opened up to us. And we're experiencing this life. And here's what God's saying. Are you in or out? Are you in or out? Do you understand there's people around you that are dying? They are dying. They are without hope. You have all this hope. And God says, I don't want you just to go to church and enjoy the hope with the people that already have it. I don't want you just to delight in how good your lottery choice was. 
You've got to reach this city. You've got to go after these people. That's why you're here. It's the reason I don't kill you and take you to heaven right now because it would be so much better for you up there than here because the only thing that is in heaven that is not here that I want you to pay attention to are the other people I want to go to heaven and you are the contact. Here's the deal. God still does miracles. God still does miracles. God did a miracle in this time, but here's the reality. If the lepers had never reported it, would it have made any difference to the people in the city? No, they would have still died. And for whatever crazy reason it is, God says, I will not do this thing called ministry alone. I could. I could eliminate you. you I could make you not part of this picture at all. I could do it better without you. But he never does. He says, it's a partnership. I'll do the miracles. You tell the stories. I'll do the miracles. You share with other people how I've changed your life. I'll do the miracles. You have the courage to report the news. As we move into the fall, fall is a startup time for ministry. I just want to make it absolutely clear why we're here, what we're doing. We gather every week, whether it's here or at Rooted or in your life groups or in a men's ministry thing that's going to be happening, we gather because we want you to continue living out the story that God is writing in your life. We want you closer with Jesus. We want the, the blessings that God has for you, the wisdom that he gives through his word. We want you to grow in that. That's, that's one of the reasons that we're here, but it is never the only reason. We're in Huntington Beach because we believe that as a church in Huntington Beach, we can reach the people in Huntington Beach better than a church in Irvine, even an awesome church in Irvine. And that's why we're here. We are here for that purpose. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. Okay, if you are one of the lucky winners, the inners, go ahead and stand up for a second. All right, so there's a string attached. Sorry. But it's okay, because this is so, so totally exciting. Um, in your program, there is an invitation, boldly. Okay, so if you're standing up, you don't need to, you can get it if you want. Everybody else pull it out, boldly. Okay, we got this thing. All right, that $20 is not for you. Okay, and it's not for Julie. And it's not for Lo. This $20 is for somebody that you're going to come across today that you don't know today. But tonight they'll never forget you because you're going to give it to them with no strings attached. You're just going to give it to them. Or you can buy something worth $20 and give it to somebody. I want you to use the $20 as an investment. And if they ask you, why are you doing this, you weirdo? Why are you doing this? You're making me nervous. Nobody just does that. I want you to be bold. I want you to say, you know why I do this? is because Jesus has done this for me. Or I go to a church, and they told me to do it. Really? I'd like to know what church that is. I'd like to know. I have this thing ready. Now, I don't want you to force it into the conversation. If, if it, you don't have to, that's not the goal, is just to get them an invitation to church. But I want you to be ready, because they'll probably ask. They'll probably ask you. And then you can say, well, I'd love to invite you to a church that is teaching us 
how to live boldly, how to live in the love of God. I'd love you to come for that. You can sit down. The rest of you don't get the $20 to do this, but I'm expecting it. You use your own $20. It might be the best $20 you ever invested. Do it without $20. Invite people to come. Here's the reason. Listen, this is not a magic place, and there are other good churches. But we believe you can't do this by yourself. So let us help you. Let us help you with this. Then the last thing I'd like to ask you about or encourage you with is uh, we are in a place that we're trying to make this place that we minister, we're trying to make this a place that is really hospitable for new people to come. And we've got challenges here. Now, one of the biggest challenges is our parking situation. And a week ago, we talked to the people here. We've been talking to them for months. We said, please give us a parking lot. And a week ago, they said, okay, we'll give you a parking lot. And we said, can we have any parking lot we want? And they said, yes. We said, okay, we're taking that one right there. And so in a couple of weeks, that parking lot is ours. What we need is we need some of you that aren't doing anything right now to say, listen, I will help in the parking lot. We're going to have a parking ministry now. We haven't needed one, but now we need one. And we need you to step up. We need people that will step up and greet people as they come and organize them and take what God has given us now, a little miracle here, and we want to use it to the best of our advantage. That's what we want to do. We need help with that. We need help in other areas. And in your program, there's a volunteer card. Listen, we need everyone to step up. We are a small church, and we need everyone to participate because we're preparing for other people to come. It's our goal that later in this fall, we go to two services. And you look around, you go, well, we still got space. Well, we want to take up that space. We want people to come. And so we need to start preparing our teams for that, for two services. And it's a great thing. Two services are great. It means if you're serving in the children's ministry, you still get to come to church. It's a great thing. It gives people different options of when to come. It's a really great thing. But we all need to participate because here's the bottom line. God does miracles, but we tell the story. We prepare the way. We connect people to this miracle God. That's our job. Would you stand and we'll pray.